0: Welcome to the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU and we are here at the bookstore with my co-host Arson Kashkashian at the Boulder Bookstore. And a returning author, Arson, one of my previous favourite books from the book club, we have the author of that, has returned. Tell us who we have been reading for the month of July.
1: We have Stephen Wingate here um, and we're reading The Leave Takers, his newest book. The University of Nebraska Press. And uh, this is quite the story about it. It's really about focused on a couple who are both have a lot of grief in their lives and kind of the ways they deal with that grief, which isn't so healthy, but we'll get into that.
0: Well, it's great to have Stephen with us back again. People might remember the previous visit of Fathers and Fire, which was uh, the book that we read a while ago. And Stephen, this is a book as uh, Arson said about grief, but at the heart of it, it's a love story. At this couple. Yes, absolutely
2: a love story, and that's the way I intended it. And, and by the way, fantastic to be back, and thank you for having me back.
0: So. The couple in question is Lainey and Jacob but they are both mired in grief they've both been through so much and I have an issue with how much trauma you have inflicted on these two poor people but you do give them some uh, redemption as well there is some light at the end of the tunnel but they are both dealing with tremendous loss death people that they've loved and then issues within their own relationship so why did you want to explore grief in such an in-depth way
2: uh, because it's been part of my life for almost as long as I've been alive. I, I lost my dad when I was 10. Um, and that that kind of thing just leaves a shadow on you and you, it, it just stays there. And um, I knew that eventually I would be experiencing grief uh, when my brother died uh, because he was a long-term uh, junkie. And I knew that eventually that I would be, you know, mourning a dead brother. Um, and uh, it finally happened. Uh, and it was time to really kind of sit with the grief and uh, just kind of get to know it a little better because obviously if you deny it, it's just gonna come back and be all over you. So it was time to come to terms in in a way with grief, so I started doing it the the only way I knew how, which was by writing. I actually started this book uh, in 2003 uh, and finished it in 2020. Uh, because I knew for all this time that my my brother was going to eventually die from drugs, and then uh, and he finally did. And it was time to really go back and and really finish that book off. And it changed a lot once I actually had the experience of of that brotherly loss. And my mother had died by that time as well. Uh, so it was it was time.
1: How did it change? I mean, what what what? You had this idea that your brother was going to die, and you started this book, but. You know, how, how did that, your, your vision or your feelings about grief change during those 15, 17 years? Uh, the depth of uh,
2: how much you plunge yourself into it uh, changed. Um, because I could imagine mourning my brother, but actually mourning my brother was just a much more in-depth process with much less self-control and much less, it was not an intellectual exercise that I had been preparing myself for for years it was a real loss, this, is, this person is gone. And also, uh, I think I underestimated the, the uh, extent of self-blame that comes when someone dies. Uh, I remembered it from, from my father dying, uh, and, but with my brother, I, I didn't really start thinking, oh, I could have done this, or if I had only done that, until quite a while. You know, until he was dead and I, I wasn't really thinking about that while he was still alive I was thinking Mike why don't you get your act together uh, but once he died I thought wow if I had done this differently if I had done that differently and I, I wasn't really prepared for that and that changed the book because that changed Jacob's attitude toward his brother Daniel and uh, he had a lot more guilt than uh, than than I than he had had in previous incarnations.
0: How they deal with the loss is so well explored in this uh, the the rituals that they go through Jacob literally speaks to the ghosts I mean there are ghosts throughout this book but they're physical manifestations of these people and they come and visit they're not scary you know spectres they are the physical manifestation he has conversations with his brother daniel and then Lainey, his his wife does the same with her mother who died when she was a child and then her father who died when she was an adult so what about that that how the the spirit of the person lives on it's in a very physical way and actually the first chapter was like i i, I didn't realize that one of the people were, was dead until <laughs> i was in it i was like oh this is a, a ghost story but you know ghosts and, and how the, the presence of, of somebody who's moved on stays with you I mean, why was that something you wanted to explore in terms of your own personal experience? Because I
2: missed them, I missed my dad. Uh, they're not here in physical reality so for uh, Jacob and Laney they, they c- kind of create that with their own minds in order to give themselves company, in order to give themselves a family because they're both really orphaned and cut off and they project these people to to simply have company and to, to not feel so alone in the world
1: so Jacob one of the ways he responds is he's kind of hoarding their possessions you know he's got a room he's got all sorts of stuff from his brother his father his mother Laney does a totally different route which i thought was very interesting and where the title comes from can you explain what Laney does maybe where you came up with this idea and 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 just just you know take us through that a little bit
2: I really wish I knew where I came up with this idea. Uh, it, what Lainey does with the possessions of, of her dead is she just takes a drive and she leaves their possessions in random places for other people to find because she wants those possessions to have a life beyond the person who's dead. So when she's uh, when the novel starts, she's taking a cross country drive uh, with her father's possessions and leaving you know little things on gas station. Uh, you know, on the pumps or uh, in, in a rest stop, uh, uh, on some kind of you know uh, picnic table, uh, and she just wants to kind of let them all go. And her hope is that someone else will find them and say, "Ah, oh, this is wonderful. I love this. I want to make this part of my life." So, in a way, she's trying to push this person into some kind of earthly eternity through these objects, uh, in, a, in a similar way to how she's. Trying to make the, the dead live uh, by projecting those ghosts and talking with those ghosts.
0: And Jacob has a completely different thing. As, as Arson said, he, it's a shrine room essentially that he keeps it, but then when Laney comes in to his life and his home, which is in South Dakota, which we'll talk about because it's, it's such an important setting she wants him to do the same thing. And, and it really explores how our relationship with the person is tied to the relationship with the objects. And, and there's such psychology with that. I mean, I remember when my mother died and we left her shoes by the door for a couple of years because nobody wanted to take that move to remove them because it, it's such there's such a sense of finality when you actually tackle the, the objects that belonged to the person who died.
2: Yeah. yeah. And Jacob. Like you he said, he's a hoarder. He holds on to them. He doesn't want to let them go. He puts them in this privileged place in his life and goes to visit the room to go commune with his dead. Uh, and it's it was a kind of a unstoppable force meets immovable object. And Jacob just decides, hey, if I'm if I'm going to have this love in my life, uh, I'm going to need to just let this stuff go. And it's really hard for him to let it go, but he does. Uh, and you know that's that's why it's a love story because it's about how people about the give and take, and uh, people kind of figuring out, all right, what it is, what I, what do I need to change, in order to to stay in this relationship.
0: And in addition to their shared grief, you know, they're both dealing with the loss of their parents, and then Jacob's uh, brother Daniel dies as well. They also have this shared. I mean, it is an addiction to pills, but they sort of skirt around it, where they kind of drive up to the edge of it, but then they say, no, we can be clean, and then we'll back off. So, so take us through that. You mentioned that your brother died from drugs and Daniel, Jacob's brother, died of a drug overdose. But this it's almost like a, I don't want to categorize addiction, but it's almost like a low-level addiction where they feel it's a low-level, that they can dip in and out of it.
2: It, it is definitely a low-level addiction. And uh, it's something that's been, that's definitely in my family. And I would be lying to say that it's not in me. I mean, it's certainly in me. And I have certainly uh, flirted uh, with Addiction to various things, and I'm one of the lucky ones who has an off button. Uh, unlike most of the men in my family who have not really had an off button, uh, I, I think they are addicts. There's no question. They just fool themselves into thinking I can manage my addiction. I can I can take pills for ten days and then I stop. Uh, and I'm sorry, that's still an addiction. You're you're still going back to those pills. So I am very, very conscious of that. Actually, uh, I don't know if I can talk about other venues here, but I wrote a piece for a literary hub about that. It's called The Addict as Archaeologist. Uh, came out a month or so ago. And it, um, it's all about that kind of topic of, of kind of digging into your low-level addiction, or what I like to call the low-calorie uh, addiction, which for me is never really very far away. Any anything I put into my body, I'm always thinking, is this going down the wrong road? Is this a bad thing? Because I've seen what it can do to people and people I love who are very close to me. And uh, yeah, it's it's definitely addiction. They just, they're kidding themselves. They're fooling themselves. And the only way they're they're going to get out of it is by not fooling themselves anymore.
1: Well, fooling themselves allows them not to try to get help in any mm-hmm. way. And you know, for a little while in the book, um, I was getting a little frustrated with, like, oh, they need therapy, they need something, and and then finally it's mentioned, an FBI agent kind of brings up the subject, like, are are you getting help, are you, <laughs> like, and I thought that was interesting, and I, we want to get to the setting, as Maeve said, I, I think it fit in with the setting, you, you get this idea they're in rural South Dakota, and maybe therapy is not as readily available, and as widely as accepted as it is, you know, in the town like Boulder. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that relationship and, and their ability to fool themselves also means that they're not going to seek help, right?
2: Yes. Part of the South Dakota ethos, and Jacob is much, even though he doesn't really like South Dakota, in fact loathes it in many ways, he is much more of a South Dakota person than he would like to let on. And up there, well, you've been there, it's, it's uh, people are just, they're tough and they're proud of being tough and I can do this by myself and I don't need help. And that kind of is combined with the addict's white knuckling thing of saying, I can do this myself. I can stop anytime I want to. It, it's really hard for people to say, Help me, especially if you're an addict. It's really hard to say, Help me. And the, neither of them want to do that because then they feel that they would feel even more pathetic than they already feel uh, because their addiction gives them a lot of shame. And I, I found that with addicts in my family and out. You know, that, that addiction really gives you shame. And it's hard to say, help me, because then it's, it's really, you're kind of admitting, all right, failure. I'm a failure. I've, I've messed up. And, you know, I think that's actually the first step to, to healing addiction is to, to say, help me. Uh, and neither of them want to do it. And Jacob, in particular, is he's wrapped up in the machismo, even though he pretends. That no, South Dakota is really not who I am. But he spent his teen years here, and he's he's been back for for a couple. And he's you know he's definitely a South Dakota kid who doesn't want to ask for help. He wants to do it all by himself. Uh, and that's you know if you're in trouble, that's a really difficult place to put yourself in.
0: So there's this whole other backstory, and the reason he's in South Dakota, and the reason there's an FBI agent, is that Jacob and. Uh, late brother Daniel lost their parents to a murder-suicide and that of course influences so much in their life but to the point that Jacob creates a website, suicide.com. And so we hear almost some of the backstories of people who he tries to then help because he's trying to, he tried to help Daniel, then he tries to help these other people. Ultimately, he can't help himself. He's the person who he should be helping. Why did you want to put them in that context, murder, suicide? Was it something in the news? Was it something that you saw? Because that's such an extreme form of death for these two boys who then end up living with family members in South Dakota.
2: This is uh, me taking a little bit of my life and just making it more extreme for the purposes of uh, giving myself a challenge that's not autobiographical uh, and uh, kind of making a more dramatic situation to work with fictionally. My own dad when he died was about to go to jail for attempted murder, not for someone within my family but uh, that kind of weight has been something that i carried for a really long time uh and i wanted to see well what what's that weight like if it's heavier so i gave jacob and daniel a heavier weight uh and their their father had uh, killed their mother and then killed himself and that's uh, something that's really haunting jacob a lot more than uh, my family situation was haunting me but i like to do that with fiction i think many people do that it, it take some part of your life it, it's unavoidable to write about your own life in fiction you're, you're going to do it one way or another whether you are trying or not and i just took it and kind of made that monster bigger just to see how it was going to affect people
0: did you ever think you were putting too much on your characters because I, I mentioned this at the beginning mm-hmm. there There's so much empathy and sympathy that I had for them. I think you write them in such a sympathetic way, but I just kept feeling, oh my gosh, can we give them a break? There's so much that these poor people are trying to deal with. I I
2: definitely worried about that. And uh, I, I think one of the things that I did over the drafts was to try to concentrate that sadness in specific places rather than have everything be all sad all the time. Because we all know people who've lost just kind of everybody, and they're just... Sometimes, unless they work through it, they just they feel really hollow, and they can't connect to others. And Jacob Laney are both like that. It's very difficult for them to try to connect to people. They're, they're kind of like the only people they can connect to because they both felt that shared loss. So over the drafts, I, I definitely had that in mind, of trying to kind of pull back and not have them be such sad sacks. And that's that was the danger, to it. but at the same time, they're sad sex, they're both deeply depressed so ha- that's a that's a, a balancing line that i definitely had to play with and hopefully got it in, in a way that was not too frustrating for readers but they they i can't ignore i can't pretend that their life is just you know hey one great day after another because they really are mired in the in the, the situational depression
1: well i was hoping you could read a little section here the beginning i guess and give people a feel for what what the language in the book is and um, one thing I thought, you know, this is the, your third book of yours that I read. And I, I like, maybe after you read this passage, we can talk about whether you think you're changing as a writer stylistically or mm. what that's been like as you move through your career. So, this is, this is
2: the very first uh, passage. Um, it's called uh, Cherry Wet Red Fender. I named the chapters in this one For a truck pushing 50, it ran damn fine. A 1971 Dodge Power Wagon Crew Cab Camper Special 383 V8 painted a custom purple with chrome wheels and a steel front bumper ready to ram anything that pissed it off. Inside a swirly amber ball embossed with a map of earth sat atop the gear shift. From the rearview mirror hung a rabbit's foot dyed lime green and on the crew bench and back sat a man with greasy dark blonde hair down to his bare nipples and a waxy face that hadn't felt the sun in months. A drunk, he might think at first glance. A junkie, if you knew better. He stared at the open hood before him, feeling the engine rumble. The truck sat idling at Kropelnak Truck Stop outside Blunt, South Dakota, where US 83 merges with US 14 until pier, and outside the window, big tufts of snow that looked lost in their mother's storm floated through a streak of sunlight. Beneath the hood, another man, taller and sharper in the face. His light chestnut hair and a frayed ponytail set his elbows down near the radiator and cried in the biting December wind instead of checking the transmission fluid like he was pretending to do. It was the song, the damn song, making him remember the hole inside himself he could never fill. He let the sobbing last its allotted minute and slammed the hood shut without bothering to dry his eyes. Then he opened the driver's side door, threw off his tan canvas car hard coat, and tried to stare the other man down. You still dead, he asked. What do you think, said the man on the crew bench, his voice thick with the sharp vowels of Boston. He stuck his tongue out, pretending to choke, then lolled his head sideways. That song freak you out, poor baby? Yeah, it was the song. The figment in back was Daniel Nassadrine, who had died one year ago that night, the 12th of December, from a heroin overdose in Hot Springs, South Dakota. The man staring at him, Jacob Nassadreen, was Daniel's elder brother by two years and refused to forgive himself for living a moment longer. Jacob cranked the heat and the stereo, vowing to get through the song this time. It was the Allman Brothers' Ain't Wasting Time No More, which the Nassadreen boys had played together on their last shared night on Earth.
0: That's author Stephen Wingate reading from his latest novel, The Leave Takers. It's been the subject for the July Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU, Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore.
1: So um, so you lead off with Daniel's already dead. So it's not a it's not a um, and, and, he, and he's talking to him. So that, talk about that opening and that that's you, like you said, you wrote this book over a 17, 18 year period. Did that change a lot? Did that stay the same? I mean, you know, tell us about how you decided to start it. That's a very, um, you know, it kind of got me right, like, whoa, what's going on here? This is, you know, I'm not in, I'm not in Kansas, you know?
2: <laughs> for years, the opening, uh, when this book was set in Boulder, uh, which it was for most of its life, uh, the opening was Laney, and it was only when I went into that last couple of rewrites uh, after my brother died. That I said, you know, I really need to start this with Jacob, and and launch him off, and let him be the the, the first note. Uh, and I didn't want to hide the fact that that Daniel was dead. I wanted to make it really clear that this is a person who talks to dead people, uh, and it to really establish that right away about him, uh, so that nobody that nobody was fooled, and also to to let everybody know that these ghosts were very much figments of the imaginations of the characters.
1: Did, did you feel that you've changed as a writer from when you started this book to when you ended, and did that affect things like this? Like, like I, we're talking more like plot, like you felt you had to start with him, but is there also something as you as a writer that maybe causes you to look at the material a little differently through your experience? Yeah,
2: I think just also as a human being, just experiencing more as a human being is inevitably going to affect how, how you write. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't have a whole lot of perspective about who I am as a writer, and I'm, I'm flashing back to when we talked about my very first book, Wife Shopping, uh, and I tell students this story all the time. You ask this question about um, what, what's the meaning with all these secondhand things in wife shopping, and I think I sat there dumbfounded for at least 10 seconds saying, I just didn't <laughs> really know that I did that arson. And, and now, of course, I look at it like, of course, <laughs> it's there. Well, uh, now you
1: kind of have secondhand things in this with Laney moving these things I around, do. right? That's, that's, I yeah, mean, that's why back. I
2: mentioned it. It's, it's, it was that, that theme. <laughs> yeah. And uh, for me, I, I'm not that into thinking about my themes. I don't want to be too conscious and too aware because I think if I'm too aware, uh, it ruins some of the natural storytelling that comes out and I, I made a decision a long time ago, you know, back in my, uh, I wasn't going to go get a PhD. I just wanted to get an MFA and I didn't want to do, I didn't want to intellectualize my work too much. And I, I'm i happy with that decision. Maybe it's a bad decision, but I'm happy with it because there's freedom and I, I don't second guess myself so much. So I don't really know how I've changed as a writer. I probably, uh, later on down the line, I, I might have some more perspective on it. Uh, but I don't know, I just go into the sentences, I try to make the, the sentences as musical as I can and to, to accentuate the musicality of, of every line, of every moment, and to be emotionally true to the lives of my characters. And that's kind of how it's always been. Uh, I think this book is more autobiographical than anything that I've written, but at the same time, absolutely nothing in this book happened in reality. So that's a weird, uh, that's a weird thing. So I think maybe, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly how I've changed. And maybe someday I'll see it.
0: This book would have been very, very different if it had been set in Boulder because it's set in South Dakota and that's a huge part of the book. Uh, Jacob was originally from Boston, but as a child when his parents died and murder-suicide was brought to South Dakota to live with relatives. And then Lainey is from LA. And so you've got these two people who are essentially from the coasts going to this state that isn't often explored in fiction. And so you you see their relationship to it. And actually, it's part of a series called the flyover series. Mm -hmm. And of course, South Dakota is one of the states that's often referred to in, in political terms as a flyover state. So what do you want people to know about South Dakota and that region, particularly as as you have these two protagonists who aren't from them, who are from the 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 coasts, who also have to experience South Dakota?
2: Mm, yeah. Can I? Before I get to that, I want to talk a bit about what the book used to be like when it was in Boulder and how it changed, if I, if I can. When it was in Boulder, they essentially uh, lived the same setup, but. Jacob lived uh, basically at Arapahoe between 95th and 75th. Uh, And there was an old farmhouse there, an imaginary farmhouse in my mind, and that's where they lived. Uh, And Jacob had a wonderful relationship with the place that he lived, and if things got tough, there were a ton of friends around, they could see people and just say, oh, okay, life is not so terrible because I have my friends and I love the place that I live. Uh, and moving it up to South Dakota, which I did because I moved up to South Dakota uh, for a a teaching gig at South Dakota State University. Uh, It took a long time to reconcile myself to that place because it's very different culturally uh, from here. Um, So when I moved that book up, uh, it, it isolated them further. It really made them need to fight with their ghosts alone and they really had to hunker down because it was just them and they didn't have that uh, friend support group, so that was a big change, and I, I think it made the book better than it had been because it, it isolated them and and it upped the ante on everything. It wasn't they couldn't just you know go hang out with friends, smoke a bowl, and, and have it you know and just kind of relax. It just wasn't an option anymore. Uh, so kind of I kind of had to fight those demons a little harder. In terms of what I want people to say about South Dakota, uh, or to, to feel about South Dakota, I, I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm not that self-aware as a writer. Um, and uh, But in terms of how I feel about South Dakota, it's, it's a very different cultural place for me and one that I have not really reconciled with and I'm not sure I'm ever going to. Uh, it's, uh, it's a foreign place to me. It's a place where I live. It's a place I've come to know. But it's not my place. so I can't really write about it from the perspective of anyone who is uh, to any sense instructing people about what it's like. All I can do is say the truths and you know multiple truths about the place as I see and experience them. So I'm no authority on on South Dakota and I, I'd like people to uh, you know just kind of think about it on their own and, and figure out how, they feel about it they, they're they going to have their own relationship to it so I, I'm not in any way someone who can speak for the place but I can speak about the place and I think that that's absolutely crucial to have it any kind of regional literature uh, you, you need to have people from outside writing about the region otherwise you mostly get cheerleading and that leads very quickly to provincialism. Well, you
0: say you, you know, you find it so, so different culturally. You don't mention politics explicitly at all in the book. But of course, it's that undercurrent. I mean, and one of the ways it's expressed is that Laney's of Lebanese heritage. And Jacob says, you probably don't want to mention that to people around right here. And so she has that at the back of her mind, although they do meet people who share similar attitudes, but they describe that as being in a, a very small bubble within that context.
2: Yeah, and that's honestly how we feel. I mean, we're, we're in a university town, and there's a lot of times we just have to just keep our mouths shut. And it's, it's very freeing, for instance, to come home, come back to Boulder, and just be able to talk and speak about how we feel. Uh, because I don't feel that uh, in South Dakota at all. Uh, my wife has a phrase for it, she'll she'll say, if we're going someplace, she'll say, we'll be in mixed company, Steve, so which is, (laughs) that's code word for shut up and don't talk about politics and, you know, don't let your freak flag fly. Uh, I do know a few people in South Dakota who have freak flags, uh, they keep them, you know, buried, uh, especially right now. Uh, it's, you know, the red states of America have gotten redder and there's no question about that. many more people uh, proportionally voted for uh, Hillary Clinton in South Dakota than voted for Joe Biden. So it, it becomes even uh, more uh, hardened in that kind of redness.
1: So, you know, you talked about putting your characters in a, sort of a pressure cooker and being mm-hmm. in South Dakota, help that they're isolated. The other big factor in the book is that this couple has decided, you know, they want to have a baby and that's very hard for Lainey who's been diagnosed with a malformed uterus which makes it you know not impossible but very very difficult. And so so they're constantly confronting grief anew with miscarriages. Yeah. And that I thought that was interesting because here they have so much grief but in some ways they're inviting it when these days it seems like less less and less people are having kids, you know yeah. that 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 it's It's much more, I don't want to say acceptable, but it's much more common uh, for a couple to not have any kids than it was, say, 30, 40, 50 Mm -hmm. years ago. So they could have made that choice without anybody thinking twice about it. Um, So tell us about that and and how that factors into um, the story and why they so desperately want a child. Well, they desperately want a family,
2: and there's no family left, so they need to create one. And I, I mean that's the the simplest way to put that is they just they really want to have that family experience, uh, and uh, how else are they going to do it? I mean they, they they guess they could adopt and that's probably the next phase if they if they didn't but they're uh, I don't think they would do that until they got rid of their their pill problem. Uh, so uh, and also you know if, if we it, it took us a while to, for to to have babies there was a there was a period of it not happening so I've experienced that uh, not exactly in the same way that, that Laney has but, but enough so that, that I know what's, what's happening uh, in, that, in that world and have experienced that loss uh, and it is a loss, it is a form of grief uh, but at the same time it's this push pull of grief and hope of yes we're running the risk of, of having a, another miscarriage uh, there's maybe there's going to be a baby and obviously because it's happening in laney's body she feels it a lot more for jacob it's more abstract because it's not his body uh, and, and laney's body is the battlefield there and so she really uh, has a lot of uh angst and sadness uh, about that and, and really doesn't doesn't want the pressure, but still wants to take a chance. She just doesn't want to get her hopes up. She's always saying to Jacob, don't get your hopes up because I lose all my babies. Uh, and then uh, I don't know. Am I allowed to have spoilers? Sure. And they, there's there's a baby. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> eventually it does it does work out. And I, I really wanted to write a book that was hopeful. I didn't want to read you know leave them you know on the precipice of despair because it's a hard place to live and it's hard to to feel any joy if you're on the precipice of despair so I wanted to make sure that I that I give them some hope
0: and it is a wonderful ending and it's not saccharine and it doesn't change in any way the tone of the book it's it totally goes along with how realistic life is it's a it's a kind of synopsis I suppose of how how things ended up with all the the ups and the downs as well but it's, it's a really I thought a wonderful way to end the book but we're going to have more conversation with Stephen Wingate in the podcast only edition of this after hours at the Radio Book Club so please do subscribe to the podcast but uh, in the meantime for our radio listeners you have been listening to the Radio Book Club a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore Stephen Wingate our guest this month The Leave Takers is his novel but who are we reading for the month of August Arsene?
1: We're going to be reading Peter Heller, and the book is The Guide, which is somewhat of a follow-up to The River, um, the last book we talked to him about. And it's uh takes place in a lodge on the river, kind of an elite lodge where rich people go. And Jack is touring the singer around when there's like a shot in the dark, or and, and suddenly something sinister is afoot. And so we're going to be doing that live here in the Boulder Bookstore Ballroom at 6.30 PM on August 25th. It's a Wednesday night. You can come see Peter Heller. You can come see me and Maeve do our thing and we'll record the show live.
0: You can check the website for the Boulder Bookstore. We are excited that live events are returning. So do check that out. And of course, tune in and hear the interview on the fourth Thursday in August. But for KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene.
1: Thank you, Maeve.